a couple weeks ago, um, I went to pick up my son from Ethos Kids back here. My son Elijah is six years old, and every time I pick him up, uh, I just kind of ask him, hey, did you have fun? You know, what, what did you learn this week? And a couple weeks ago, I said, what did you learn this week? And he said, nothing. And I was like, why, why didn't you learn anything? Said, well, because they told a story that I've already heard before. And he had this look of disappointment on his face as though he had just watched a rerun of his favorite show or, you know, watched a movie that he's already seen five times. And, and so it was a great teaching moment because I got to sit down with Elijah and talk with him about why in, in the church, why in Christianity do we tell the same stories over and over again? I mean, if you've noticed that, if you've been in church any amount of time, you'll start to notice that, that our, our source for material is only so big, and that pretty soon we start repeating the same stories that we've told over and over again, but these stories are important, and we tell these stories for a reason, and I remember telling Elijah, because Elijah loves to hear stories about my childhood. He loves when I tell him stories about when I was a kid, and I can tell him the same story about when I was a kid over and over again, and he loves it. In fact, there are some stories that I tell him that are tied to specific places here in Nashville because my grandparents lived here my whole life. And sometimes we'll be driving around town and we'll pass an intersection and Elijah will go, Dad, Dad, look, that's that, that's that place for that story that you told me about you remember. And he loves remembering these stories. Elijah loves hearing stories when I was a kid because he knows that those stories have shaped me and they say something about where I come from. And because they shape me and talk about where I came from, they shape him. And they say something about where he came from. And see, these stories in the Bible that we read, we tell the same stories over and over again because these stories shape us. And they say something about where we come from and who we are and where we're going. The story that we're going to read today is probably very, very familiar to many of you. Even if you've only been in church a handful of times your whole life, you've probably heard parts of this story before. And I want to just say this to those of you that are in church all the time, you've been a part of Advent or Christmas for years and years, let's not check out of this story just because we've heard it a million times. When we go to read it, let's not turn off our brains. Let's engage. Let's let our hearts engage in the story. Let's enter into the story because I believe this story speaks to those who are followers of Jesus, to Christians, but it also speaks to non-Christians. And I believe that this story speaks to the longing of every single human heart, whether you are believer or skeptic or atheist or curious seeker, I believe that this story speaks to the longing of every single human heart. So let's enter into it together. Luke chapter 2, we'll start in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord out of Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now pause right there. just want to tell you what's happening here. Uh, this is a story about, you know, there's a lot of names and places that we may not recognize that we aren't familiar with, but these, these names and these places are important because what, what the author is telling us here is, hey, this story you're about to read is a story that took place in real time, in real history, in a real place, with real people. Oftentimes, the story that we're about to read, we've read it so many times that if we're not careful, we kind of relegate it to the world of fantasy. And we read it the same way we would read Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia or watch Star Wars. But what the author here is trying to show us is, hey, this story did not unfold in Middle Earth or in Narnia or in a galaxy far, far away. No, this story unfolded right here on Earth in a real historic place with real historic people at a real historic moment. So pay attention. That's what the author's doing there. Look in verse 4. So Joseph went up from the town of Nazareth into Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, 
Because he belonged to the house of David, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. We'll pause there again for a moment. Mary and Joseph. So if you read the whole book of Luke, in the first chapter you're introduced to Mary and Joseph, and here's what's happening. They're, they're engaged to be married, and Mary is pregnant, but she's not pregnant with Joseph's baby. And so it's kind of this scandalous moment where this engaged couple or this woman that is pregnant with a baby that doesn't belong to her fiancé. But when you read Luke 1, you find out that the reason she's pregnant is because the Holy Spirit of God has come upon her and has conceived a child. And so she is carrying a child conceived by God. In fact, Mary has never slept with a man, never been with a man. She's a virgin, and she's carrying this baby. And so you find this couple that from the outside, everyone around them would say it's this scandalous moment, an engaged couple. She's carrying somebody else's baby, and they have to pack up, and they have to travel. It's about a 70-mile trip from Nazareth to Bethlehem. So this pregnant woman and her fiancé packing up, traveling down 70 miles, probably on a donkey, to go to Bethlehem for this census. Look in verse 6. And while they were there, while they were in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And we're going to pause right there for a minute. You know, if the story were to stop right here, it actually has kind of a depressing tone to it, honestly. I mean, here you've got this couple that from the outside looks like this kind of scandal and shameful situation. They've traveled all the way to Bethlehem. And, you know, the traditional story that we've all heard has them kind of rolling into town on a donkey and immediately Mary goes into labor. But the way that the story reads, it says, while they were there, while they were there, it came time for this baby to be born. We don't know how long they had been there, but it comes time for this baby to be born. And traditionally, traditionally we think there's this mean old innkeeper. There's no room at the inn, and so they kick Joseph and Mary out to go sleep in the stable. But in reality, it says there's no guest room available. What this implies is that chances are Joseph and Mary were actually, so they're staying with family or close friends, and it says there's no room in the guest room. So here's what happens. There's lots of people that have come, and they're all staying in this one household. And I don't know if you've ever been present at a birth of a child before, but if you're in a room crammed with people, it's not going to be the most pleasant experience for anyone, for the mom, for the baby, for those that are like standing and trying to get out of the way. It's like nobody wants to be in a room shoulder to shoulder with a woman that's giving birth. And so it's not a mean innkeeper that is kicking Joseph and Mary out. No, it's probably a relative or a close friend of Joseph that says, hey, bro, this can't go down in here. Like, there's no room in here for this to happen. And so Joseph and Mary leave, and they go to the stable. The stable was probably adjoined to the house. It wasn't uncommon then for the first floor of the house to actually be the stable where their donkey or any other livestock would have stayed, and then the rest of the house to be on a higher level. So Joseph and Mary, they go outside, and this baby is born. And at the moment of this birth, it's not real exciting. There's no fanfare. There's no reception. The baby is born, and he's laid in a manger. And we've kind of romanticized this word manger. It's just a feeding trough. I don't know if you've ever seen a feeding trough, but they're not real clean. So this baby is born wrapped in the traditional cloths and laid in this manger. And the only ones there to celebrate it are the mother And this man who would play the role of supportive dad to a child that he knew was not his own. And it was probably a house full of relatives that were looking out there going, I can't believe Joseph brought her here. That woman who's having someone else's baby. And this is the scene we're left with at the end of verse 7. 
But what I love is that the, the writer doesn't linger too long on that scene right there in verse 7. It's almost as if he moves on quickly because he doesn't want people to revel in what feels like a sad moment. Instead, he's showing us that there's something amazing going on because of this birth that seems to be so sad and depressing. Look in verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. I love this scene because it's such a contrast to what we see unfolding at the birthplace of Jesus. At the birthplace of Jesus, there's no reception or wild fanfare, and yet not far away in this field, heaven is literally breaking into earth because of the birth of Jesus. This angel shows up to random shepherds who are just doing their job in a field, brilliance of God, the glory of God shining all around this angel. And the angel shows up to give a birth announcement. Now, for those of you who've had kids, you know that moment of wanting to announce the birth of your child. I remember my youngest daughter, Dahlia, she's seven months old. She was born back in April. And I can remember after she's born, I'm waiting, trying to get that perfect picture so that I can announce to the world on Instagram that my beautiful baby daughter is here. But man, this birth announcement just blows Instagram out of the water. I mean, it is like heaven has just erupted onto earth, the, the glory the radiance of God shining around these random shepherds saying, hey, we have good news. The angels show up to give the birth announcement of Jesus Christ. And they start the birth announcement with that proclamation of, hey, don't be afraid. We're bringing you good news that is going to bring great joy to all the people. This phrase of good news and, and great joy is so important. You know, good news is where we get our word gospel. Gospel literally is just a translation of the word for good news. And so here at the birth of Jesus, we find the first proclamation of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And what I love about what the angel says is the angel says, hey, this good news is going to bring joy to all people. And the reason I think this is important and significant is that isn't it true that sometimes news that is good for some people is actually bad news for somebody else? I think about real recently what's happened uh, in baseball. You know, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. It was this, yeah, we got, I know Dave's excited about that. For first time in 108 years, the Chicago Cubs win the World Series. And, and for a few days, it was like our whole nation was just lit up with excitement for the Cubs. And people who had never followed the Cubs were now saying they were diehard Cubs fans because they just wanted to cheer along with everybody else. This glorious moment where the Cubs had broken their losing streak. But isn't it true that good news for all the Cubs fans was what for the Cleveland Indians fans? It was bad. It was bad, it was bad news. Good news for the Cubs is bad news for the Indians. Now they've stepped into that title of the longest losing streak, right? So what is good news for some, sometimes, oftentimes, is bad news for others. But what the angel is saying is, hey, 
this good news of this one who was born. It is good news to all. There are no losers in this good news. Everybody wins. There's joy for all of humanity. This is not a a selective club to get into. No, this is good news for everyone. All of humanity has access to joy because of this good news. And then the angel goes on to give the birth announcement. We see three things in the birth announcement. We see they're going to give the identity of this child that is born. They're going to give an invitation. And then the angel is going to give an implication of what this good news is. So the angel is going to give the identity of the child, an invitation, and then the implication. And the angel starts with the identity. If you look in verse 11, the angel says, Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Three simple words to give the identity of this child. Savior, Messiah, and Lord. This word, Savior, it's this huge word. It carries a lot of meaning. The word Savior, it, it, it simply means one who delivers or one who saves. So to the non-Jewish ear, okay, these shepherds would have been Jews, but those who were reading this this, uh, book initially would have been Jews and non-Jews. And to the non-Jewish ear, this, this word Savior simply communicates someone who saves or delivers, someone who saves or delivers from oppression, someone who saves or delivers from pain, someone who saves or delivers from death, someone who saves or delivers from illness. The Savior is someone who steps into a dark moment and brings deliverance and brings salvation and offers hope in the middle of darkness. A Savior has been born to you. But to Jewish ears, this word had even more meaning. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 11, it says this, I am the Lord and apart from me, there is no Savior. I am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Savior. See, to the Jewish ear, this word Savior automatically pointed directly to God. A Savior has been born, one who is able to deliver and save, and this Savior is directly connected to God Almighty. A Savior has been born, and He is the Messiah, the second word, Messiah, And just want to clear something up. So this word Messiah is the exact same word as Christ. Okay, so we call Jesus, Jesus Christ. Well, Christ is just the the Greek rendering of the word Messiah. And Messiah is the Hebrew rendering. And and the word simply means anointed one. It means the one who is anointed. And to the Hebrews, to the Jews who who would have listened to this or, or read this story to those shepherds, they knew who the Messiah was. They knew about this anointed one. Because it was this promise that reverberated all throughout their Old Testament, all throughout their scriptures, was this promise of an anointed one. Daniel mentions it in Daniel chapter 9. He talks about when the anointed one will come. And all through the prophets, there's this promise that the anointed one will come. And the anointed one will sit on the throne of David, who was the greatest king. The greatest king to the Israelites was David, and there was going to come an anointed one who would be greater than him and would sit on his throne, and the government would sit on his shoulders, and his rule would know no end. His rule of justice and mercy and peace and joy would never know an end, but it would go on forever. This is the Messiah. And the angel says, hey, a Savior has been born, and he is the Messiah, the anointed one that you have been waiting for. And then this third word, Lord, a Savior has been born. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Now, this word Lord would often be used uh, if it was like a servant or someone who was talking to someone that deserved respect. 
and they would call them Lord. But the way that it is used here is a little different than that because it is described as a title connected with Messiah. And whenever the word Lord was described as a title in this way, it denoted one thing, and it denoted the divine. In other words, the basic message that this angel was trying to say is, hey, listen, the divine has entered into humanity. God Almighty, Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Creator of the universe, the hope for humanity has been born as a child. He's the anointed one you've been waiting for, and he is the Savior that all of humanity needs. In Christian circles, we call this the incarnation. Incarnation simply means to put flesh on, and this is part, this is such a huge part of the good news of Jesus. You see, because of Jesus, we know a God who doesn't just sit at a distance and watch us laughing. No, but we we know a God who loves us and was willing to put on flesh to be incarnated so that we can know him and so that he can fully relate to us. This is the good news that this angel was announcing at the birth of Jesus. Hey, a Savior has been born. He's the anointed one. He's the Lord. God has come. This is the identity in the birth announcement. The next part of this birth announcement was an invitation. This is what we see in in verse 12. The angel says, This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. In other words, these angels are saying, Hey, don't just take our word for it. Don't just take our word for it. I know you're seeing heaven explode all around you, and that's pretty amazing, but don't even stop there. I want you to go and see, and this will be a sign for you that what we're saying to you is the truth. This is what you're going to find, and they paint a picture of this scene where Jesus was born and tell the shepherds to go see it. It's this invitation. This is what happens when the gospel of Jesus is proclaimed. We proclaim the identity of Jesus as Lord, but then there's this invitation to come and see. This is why the incarnation of Jesus is so important, because we proclaim the good news and we say you can actually see it, and this is why it is so important that we, as followers of Jesus, that we become literally the body of Jesus, that we incarnate the gospel to those around us. Because it empowers us to be able to not just talk about the identity of Jesus, but to be able to invite people to see it. Hey, this is who Jesus is. Will you step in and see it? Come and see it. Come and see it. So the angels give the identity. They give the invitation. And then they get to the implication of this good news. Why is it such good news? And what does it mean? Look in verse 13. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. Here's what the good news means. It means glory to God and peace for humanity. Glory to God and peace for humanity. God glorified in humanity finding peace. I love the way one Christian preacher put it. He said it this way, there is hardly a better way to sum up what God was doing when he created the world or when he came to reclaim the world in Jesus Christ. He was about his glory and our peace, his greatness and our joy, his beauty and our pleasure. The point of creation and redemption is that God is glorious. And he means to be known and praised for his glory by a peace-filled 
humanity. See, this good news means that God attains glory and that peace comes to humanity. But here's what I love about this glory. Look at the way that God goes about attaining glory for himself. He comes and he puts on the flesh of a newborn infant. And he is born into total obscurity and placed in a dirty, filthy feeding trough. You see, our God, although he has all power, although he could do whatever he wanted to gain glory for himself, he chooses to humble himself. And the way that he gains glory is by humbling himself and being born as a helpless infant so that he can relate to us, his children. This is a truly glorious and good God. And I love that the other part of this good news is not just God glorified, but peace to humanity. And I love the way the angel says this. He says, listen, it is on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, this is, this is really important for us to notice here. I want you to notice that this proclamation of the gospel, this proclamation of the good news does not promise the end of war or violence and strife on earth in this lifetime, in this age. The gospel of Jesus does not say that at the birth of Jesus, all wars cease, all violence stops, and all strife ends on earth in this age. It's important to know because this time of year, you're going to look around and you'll see lots of people with signs saying peace on earth. And yes, we long for peace on earth, but we've got to understand that the birth of Jesus did not usher in the peace of Jesus worldwide. Instead, it says, on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. What the gospel of Jesus offers is this. The good news of Jesus states that those who belong to God will experience a peace that is not dependent upon your outward circumstances. That when you are in Jesus, when you know God because of Jesus, you can have this inward peace that though all the world may be going crazy around you, That all war may be breaking out, all hell may be breaking loose, and yet because of Jesus, you can walk in an inward peace that is beautiful. This is the promise of the good news of Jesus. This is the peace of Jesus. This is what we see in Jesus when he's lying on the stern of a boat. In Mark chapter 4, he's laying in a boat, and there's a storm around him with hurricane-force winds going crazy, and everyone about him is losing their minds. And there's Jesus, just full of peace. This is the peace that we see in Jesus when he's hanging on a cross, being brutally murdered, and yet he has this ability, this wherewithal to have peace about him, where he looks down from the cross, and he actually starts to pray for the people that are murdering him. Instead of being filled with hate and bitterness and rage, he looks down and he says, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. It's in Luke chapter 23. This is the peace that we see Jesus giving when he says, hey, my peace I give to you. My peace I give to you. This is the peace of Jesus that we see at work in his followers in the book of Acts when, when they are persecuted and beat and, and, and flogged and yet they walk away rejoicing And they continue to walk in complete kindness to one another because they're filled with the peace of Jesus. This is the peace that the Apostle Paul would describe as the peace of God that goes beyond our understanding because it is a peace that does not make sense to the rest of the world. It is a peace that is at work deep in our hearts so that everything in your life can be falling apart and yet you can be walking in utter peace because of Jesus. This is the peace 
that is available because of Jesus Christ. This is the peace that is available to you when you come to Jesus. I kept thinking about peace this week and this kind of peace that we're describing. And the reality is for all of us, for most of us, I think this peace feels rather elusive. It feels like it's really hard and the harder we try to get peace for ourselves, the the more elusive it seems. And we try any number of things to chase after peace in our lives. For some of us, we think that peace is going to be found in relationships. We think, man, if I can just find that one man or that one woman to love me the way that I I need to be loved, then my heart could be at peace. Or we think, if I could just find that that one friend group or that one community where I can belong, then my, my heart could be at peace. For some of us, we think it's in material things. We think, man, if I only had fill in the blank, or if I only had enough money to buy these things that I want, then my heart could find peace. And this is a lie that begins to come after us even when we were at a young age. I was, just, I was talking with my son, Elijah, same son, talking to him the other day. And, and you know, he's always asking for things. I mean, our kids are always, oh, look at this, I want this, I want this. And, and Amy and I, my wife and I, are constantly having to, having to say no to a lot of the things that they want because, honestly, they just don't need them. But sometimes when they ask for things, we have to say, well, Elijah, the reason we can't get that is because we can't afford it. And, and the other day, Elijah looked at me and said, Dad, I can't wait till I grow up I'm going to be so rich <laughs> so that I can buy whatever I want. And I'm like, oh, man, that is not the message I wanted you to hear in this. Already this lie is at work in his heart. That if he could just get, 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 buy, 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 have, 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 then his heart could be at peace. For some of us, we think, man, if, if we just try hard enough, if we read enough self-help books, if we get just the right time management app on our phone, if we can advance technology enough, if I had a self-driving car, then I could work while I was in the car and I wouldn't have to work so hard. But the thing is, the more things that we add into our life, the less peace we seem to have. And it becomes more and more elusive the more we chase after it. You know, I think there are some people that actually think that if, if, they, if they chase after global peace, then maybe that will give them peace. They think, hey, if I just do enough humanitarian acts in the world, if I, if I join the Peace Corps, if I go on enough mission trips, if I do enough work in the inner city, or if I, if I politically lobby and try to get this peace treaty signed, then we can see peace on earth and I will have peace in my own heart. But here's the irony in that, is that global peace comes when Jesus Christ is on the throne of every human heart. This is how we find peace. Jesus says, listen, I want to tell you how my kingdom works. My kingdom is like yeast. It's this tiny little bit works through the whole lump of dough. And is the same way with the peace of the kingdom of God. He says, listen, it starts with you and your heart. You want to see peace on earth? Come to Jesus. Global peace starts with peace in your heart and my heart. And peace in our hearts comes when Jesus Christ is on the throne. He says, peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. And many go, oh man, I know there's no way I have favor with God. How could I ever have peace? There's no way that God has favor for me. But this is the beauty. This favor from God is not what you earn. This is the very thing that Jesus longs to give you. In Ephesians chapter 2, 13 and 14, the Apostle Paul would say it this way. He'd say, but now in Christ Jesus... You who were once far away from God, in other words, you who once had no favor with God, have been brought near to God by the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace.
Are you looking for peace? Does your heart long for peace? Come to Jesus. If you read on in this story, I love what happens after the the angel gives the identity, the invitation, and the implication. It says the shepherds hurry off because they want to go see it. I mean, they're out there tending these flocks of sheep, and I love this picture. Either they leave their sheep in the field, or they hurry, and they herd all their sheep into town with them. Either way, it's this crazy scene where these shepherds are running off to go find this child, and when they find him, it says that they praise God, they glorify God, and then they go and tell the world. They praise God, and they start to tell everyone. So here's the thing this morning. Do you long for peace? Does your heart need peace? We just have to follow the example we see here. We come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. So this morning, do you need peace? Come to Jesus. There's a number of ways that you can do that. If you have never put your hope in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, if you've never said, I want Jesus to be Lord, if you've never said you want to follow Jesus, you can do that. Like today, it's so simple. I mean, sitting right where you are, You can pray, Lord Jesus, I want peace. I need you, Lord. I know that you're the only one that's going to give me peace. Will you be the Lord of my life? Put your hope and your faith in him and give God glory. And then share it with someone, just like the shepherds. Share it with the person next to you. I want to follow Jesus. If you're already a follower of Jesus and you need peace, come to Jesus. Every week we come to communion. We've got this cup and this bread that reminds us of the blood of Jesus and the body of Jesus, broken for us, reminds us of Jesus who is our peace. Come to communion this morning if you need peace and just tell Jesus. Tell those in your community, pray for one another. If you need peace and you need prayers, then this morning you can come and as we're taking communion, as we're worshiping and praising God, there's gonna be men and women at the respond banner in the back men and women at the respond banner here, and we would love nothing more than to pray for you and to pray as you come to Jesus that he would give you his peace. It is a mysterious thing, and I would love to try to unpack how the peace of Jesus works, but all I know is that Jesus is faithful and that if you will come to him, he has peace and abundance to give you. And as we do this, we worship him, we come to him to receive peace, and we wait We wait and trust that when he comes back, then he will usher in total peace for all of humanity. All will be made right and all will be made new. And so this morning, we're going to take communion. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to worship and praise God. And we wait for the fulfillment of Jesus' promise for all to be made new and for peace to be poured out on humanity. Let's pray. Man, God, we love you. I love this line that we were singing before I got up here. Come and see what God has done. Thank you for the invitation. Lord Jesus, would you come into our midst and would you pour out your peace upon us for every heart that is restless, for every heart that has anxiety, for every heart that feels insecure or uncertain about where they stand with you. Lord Jesus, would you pour out your peace? As we come to communion, as we worship you, as we pray for one another, would you let your Holy Spirit be present in this room? And Lord Jesus, would you give us your peace and help us to trust and to believe and to have faith as we wait. We love you, Lord. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.